Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be on the air, but then again, I don't ever recall a time when it wasn't great to be on the air. But you know, uh, one thing I can say is that I've really enjoyed uh, discussing this uh, current uh, book topic uh, series. Andrew Waters' To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. I should say that I've uh, certainly enjoyed talking about all the other books that we've done uh, topic-wise since I was on the air uh, for the first time uh, two years ago come the start of next month. But somehow this book I know is going to be um, just as successful as the other ones, largely in part because all of you um, are active listeners, all of you are uh, eager to learn information that you did not know beforehand. But this uh, story onto itself is one that has often uh, not been told about. You know, like other uh, battles in the American Revolution that have been discussed, more often than not, we forget about the Southern campaign, largely because uh, when people think of the American Revolution, they tend to think of uh, Lexington, Concord, Bunker Hill, they tend to think of Trenton, Princeton, Saratoga, Yorktown. And while, yes, all those battles are important, what people don't realize was just how important it was for the Americans to hold on to not just the South, but be able to keep the British from um, retaking um, colonies, most notably the Southern colonies. Had the British somehow managed to um, capture the southern colonies, who's to say that other colonies would have fallen after the south had been taken? So in other words, is it fair to say that by Britain coming south that they were looking for a final coup de grace knockout that they had not been able to uh, deliver in the northern campaign as well as in the middle colony campaign? Uh, perhaps so. But we're going to learn in this uh, next uh, segment, and we have a lot of ground to cover, but we're going to learn um, more about, um, we're going to learn a lot of things, maybe I should say. We're going to learn um, about more about General uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis, but we're also going to learn um, a great deal about uh, Camden, what led up to the Battle of Camden, its debacle, but some surprises that occurred right before the actual Battle of Camden that actually did benefit the uh, Continental Army at a time when it really needed something of uh, great momentum, um, what I would call needed something of great um, momentum, given that um, once defeat happens, we have to ask ourselves, how do we move forward? So in other words, we're going to find out for ourselves if, in fact, the Continental Army really was all at the same, was all at one place at the time that um, August 16th comes about with the Battle of Camden. But then again, we might be surprised to find out that there were some other um, contributing factors that may have um, been of uh, saving grace in allowing the Continental Army as a whole to still be able to live for another day. Even in, even in its darkest hours. So our first uh, lead-off question will be the following. Was there tension in Congress over whom ought to be in charge 
of the Continental Army prior to Britain's entryway south, or rather I should say, prior to Britain's entryway comes south in 1778. So in other words, you know, when we think of tension, it's not always a good thing, but it is fair to say that even Congress itself is having feuds over funding. Congress is having issues over uh, some partisan partisan stuff uh, pertaining to the war. We do, we do need to keep in mind that there are still members of Congress um, during this time who um, whom support certain uh, elements of the war, but yet they don't support other elements of it. And one of the big elements that is dividing Congress right now is leadership. So the answer to this question is that is the answer is yes, that there was tension in Congress over whom ought to be in charge of the Continental Army prior to Britain's um, invasion of the South come 1778. This tension actually began during the latter part of 1777, the year before, when British forces under General William Howe defeated General George Washington's forces at the battles of Germantown and Brandywine in Pennsylvania. Germantown is on the outskirts of Philadelphia, in case any of you all aren't sure where that is at. Brandywine is about 30 miles south of Philadelphia in what is uh, Chester County, or uh, what we know is uh, Chad's Ford, PA. And for those of you who you know, aren't familiar with Philadelphia, there are four counties uh, on the outlying outskirts of the city, being Montgomery, Bucks, Delaware, and uh, Chester County. So Germantown and Brandywine were setbacks for General Washington. There was some good that came out of it, but it wasn't a whole lot of good. Luckily, um, for George Washington and the Continental Army and the Capitol, they were uh, and members of Congress. They were able to escape. They were able to take with them um, the most essential of items. But sadly, even all the preparation they did to uh, prevent the worst-case scenario was not enough because British troops under General William Howe did successfully go about capturing Philadelphia, the home capital of the Continental Congress. Can you believe that, folks? Uh, it wasn't as if we sat back and allowed it to happen. We did everything we could to prevent this from happening, but at the same time, Washington knew that basically that the longer his forces stayed in Philadelphia trying to defend Philadelphia, the greater the likelihood that a that not only a surrender would take place, but a surrender uh, being one of uh, greater numbers of troops lost, whom would become prisoners, and perhaps Washington himself becoming a prisoner of the war. And yes, folks, even officers of high-ranking status do become prisoners of war. So Congress is basically forced uh, to retreat west of Philadelphia, being about 40 miles into uh, what we now know as uh, present-day Lancaster County, uh, or rather I should say Lancaster, PA, just on the outskirts of uh, present-day Harrisburg being um, Pennsylvania's uh, modern-day capital. So that's just the first part of this question. The other part is that we have to go to uh, the time frame of uh, September 19th to October 7th of 1777. Well north of Philadelphia, there is a campaign in, in uh, New York State in what is 
in what we refer to nowadays as Saratoga Springs, but at the time it was known as uh, Saratoga. And Saratoga is uh, north of Albany. It's just on the uh, outskirts of the Adirondack Park, but it is uh, north of Albany. And of course, when I think of Saratoga Springs, I think of um, of a, a yearly uh, horse race that um, that gets um, televised on national TV that draws a lot of um, people. It's kind of like its own version of uh, the Kentucky Derby. But yes, between uh, September 19th and October 7th of 1777, uh, the campaign for the Battles of Saratoga take place. Whereas George Washington endured um, some bitter defeats at Germantown and Brandywine, including um, the loss of Philadelphia being Congress's capital. General, uh, rather I should say, a man by the name of Gen General Horatio Gates. He is the uh, lead commander of the uh, Continental Army for the Northern Campaign in Saratoga. And the victory at Saratoga was huge, primarily because um, by defeating the British at Saratoga, they were able... Gates' forces were able to keep uh, British, um, were able to to uh, prevent the British from uh, not only taking the Hudson River, but also um, joining forces with uh, William Howe's troops in Philadelphia to where they pretty much had a north-to-south um, dominance over not only just the roadways, but over um, everything else. In other words, that... Had the British won at Saratoga, American forces would have been in retreat, being pushed further south into um, perhaps what we know as Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, or into uh, New Jersey. It's awkward enough that come the end of 1777 that Washington's forces will be forced to retreat for winter um, rest at uh, Valley Forge, but we all know that that was no uh, picnic of a rest. But anyways, uh, General Horatio Gates' victory is also significant because once Benjamin Franklin receives news of the victory um, as ambassador to France, he is finally able to persuade uh, the French to come join the Americans in um, assisting us in our fight for uh, independence from England. So Saratoga is that necessary uh, turning point for the Americans in now making this conflict with Britain a greater global uh, matter. Because not only will France be persuaded to join, but even the Spanish, whom have uh, stakes already in North America, will also want to uh, take up arms against uh, the British, most notably along the waters. Well, things are going so well for General uh, Horatio Gates, or rather, I sh before I say just how well things are going for Horatio Gates, it is fair to say that um, that many now in Congress are under this assumption that, hey, if General Horatio Gates just defeated uh, General John Burgoyne and his forces at Saratoga, and here all of a sudden George Washington lost Philadelphia, maybe it's time for a change in leadership. So late May 1780, General Horatio Gates, even uh, two and a half years after um, the victory at Saratoga, Horatio Gates still has momentum. In other words, he's still revered by people in Congress. He's, he's revered by 
you know, even by people in the Continental Army whom he served under at Saratoga, with the perhaps with the lone exception of uh, Benedict Arnold, but that's a whole other story there for another time. But in late in late May of 1780, General Horatio Gates was given the nod to replace General Benjamin Lincoln following the British victory at the siege of Charleston, South Carolina. This was a move that um, did not involve Congress's uh, consultation of General... It did not involve Congress consulting General Washington ahead of time. In other words, General Washington believed that there needs to be protocol, okay? If you want um, a new commander for a different um, region of this uh, greater conflict, you need to go through me first. In other words, I know the officers. Yes, some of you in Congress may know the officers, but you're not on the battlefield fighting like I am. You're not on the battlefield leading regiments or, un or units of troops like I am. In other words, I know what's best for the Continental Army in terms of their having this officer leading them for this greater um, conflict in this particular region. So Congress, you know, goes behind Washington's back and um, gives the nod to to have Horatio Gates replace General Benjamin Lincoln. Washington is left dismayed. He's left dismayed because if it had been his way, he would have chosen um, a man by the name of um, Nathaniel Green for the Southern Continental Army Commander uh, post. I saw a documentary one time that showed Washington being snubbed by this uh, choice. And the man portraying Washington was so angry that he... Um, that he uh, picked up something and threw it to the ground. Nobody else was there, but Washington was venting his frustration. It was almost as if he was saying, how dare those people in Congress go behind my back? They're not the ones out on the battlefield. They're not the ones commanding the Continental Army. It's me. I'm the one that has the capability of making this decision, not them. Anyways, um... What's important about uh, July 25th, 1781? General Horatio Gates arrived into North Carolina along the Deep River, which is around present-day Asheboro, located outside of Greensboro, where he met his army for the first time. wonder what that must have been like, having met your army for the first time. Well, I can tell you this much, the army that Horatio Gates inherited was made up, made up primarily of Continental regulars being seasoned uh, veterans from the states of Maryland and Delaware. He also had three small artillery companies. So when you take the, uh, the Continental regulars from Maryland and Delaware along with these three small artillery companies, it turns out that Gates had roughly 1,200 regulars. Now, I will point out that uh, prior to uh, this battle at Camden, he will have he will get other uh, troops. But 1,200 to start out with, it doesn't seem like the highest number, but you know it's better than nothing. Now, I don't expect you all to know who this person is, but I'll mention the name. His his name is the following: Colonel. Otho, that's spelled O-T-H-O, Colonel Otho 
Holland Williams. He was a Maryland officer. Okay, so it sounds like this guy um, has been in the uh, campaign for some time in terms of the greater war effort. However, what's unique about Otho Holland Williams, or rather Colonel Williams, is that he became the first leader, or rather the first leader figure, to question General Gates's march towards Camden. Now, let's keep in mind, folks, that um, you know it's easy to assume that there's just one way in and one way out uh, somewhere, but it turns out that... Uh, more often than not, there are uh, multiple ways in getting from somewhere from point A to point B, even in the 18th century. However, it seems as though that those below General Gates, in terms of officers, seem to know something else that Gates himself doesn't know. Is it fair to say that those below General Gates, whom have... Um, whom were not captured at the Siege of Charleston, is it fair to say that they know the terrain a little bit better than General Horatio Gates? Yes. Colonel Williams um, preferred, a, preferred one route in terms of getting to Camden, whereas Gates preferred another. Turns out that General Gates favored uh, a route going through what was called the Pine Barrens, a desolate region of sand, pine, and swamp that had potential to bring hosts of unexpected things. Think about it. You get stuck in the swamp. Think of it as like getting caught in quicksand. Okay, what if you have horses? You know, what if there's always a chance that your horses could get stuck in swamps? Um, and not just that, what about... Um, encountering infectious diseases in swamps, like being exposed to mosquitoes. It's an unpleasant thought, folks, but these are things that you have to think about. So Horatio Gates wants to go on this uh, route through the Pine Barrens, going through a whole host of unexpected things. Colonel Williams, however, wanted to go um, a westerly route. That would uh, take them through Salisbury and Charlotte. Why, why did Colonel Williams want to go this way? Because by going through uh, Salisbury and Charlotte, it would be um, there. There was a stronger uh, presence of uh, Patriot um, allies, and that that is people who were more pro-Patriot. And not only would you be encountering people who are more pro-Patriot. How about uh, a greater um, likelihood of being able to um, acquire supplies, extra provisions, and how about extra troops, those whom actually want to come along and fight? Well, I hate to tell you all this, but Horatio Gates opposed uh, Colonel Williams's request. To me, it sounds like Gates did not start on the right foot, and to me, I think he might be playing with some fire. Well, if that's odd enough, how about this one? Gates's men marched along the route through the Pine Barrens at such extremes of up to 18 miles per day. It's bad enough if you're walking 18 miles per day and it's brutally hot outside, which it would be. But, but it, unfortunately, there are not enough um, provisions. Provisions, in this case, being um, food. Um, Access to 
water. Of course, I know even water itself is something that's probably not the most, uh, is probably not the safest thing to drink during this time. But the bottom line is Gates is forcing his men to do things that are very uncomfortable, considering that probably many of them have not even seen um, warfare itself before. Some of the, many of them are probably um, marching for the first time, given that the war front itself has now moved into their neck of the woods. Soldiers uh, resorted to eating food that was either not fully ripened, say eating peaches that aren't, um, aren't haven't fully uh, ripened, or eating food that had gone bad but not detected due to the state of um, starvation in many of these soldiers, including many whom were already um, experiencing signs of malnourishment. And if that's not bad enough, folks, those who did have access to food, say if you were eating a soup, or having soup, rather, do you know what some soldiers had to resort to doing, folks? You've probably heard me say this in other podcast topics, but for those of you who are new to me, I'm going to tell you right now. Many of these soldiers had to resort to using hair powder to thicken their soup. Is that not gross or what? But the scary part is these men didn't know any better. This was the only thing they knew if they were going to survive. But that's how dire the circumstances were, folks. Horatio Gates was forcing these men against their own will to march excessive miles in excessive heat with minimal provisions. It was, a, it was almost as if maybe he was trying to sell the army out. Is it fair to say that Gates is a micromanager? I believe he is. However, when I read this book, especially based upon what we're talking about here now, I was kind of blown away that Horatio Gates was somewhat flexible. And his actions of flexibility did um, pay off. It actually didn't really benefit him, but it benefited those whom uh, requested and got their uh, wishes approved, but it actually helped those individuals out more than Gates himself. One reason could be that the individual or individuals who requested these uh, proposals not only were from South Carolina, but they knew the back roads, the back country. They knew all the ins and outs, whereas Gates himself didn't know. So, did Horatio Gates come into contact with South Carolina Militia General Thomas Sumter, for whom Sumter, South Carolina, is named after? Uh, the answer is yes. The encounter happened on August the 7th of 1780, and Thomas Sumter went about um, conducting a proposal where he favored launching a surprise attack on British wagons coming to Camden from the south. These wagons, folks, would have been wagons carrying large supplies of, say, um, ammunition, large supplies uh, for clothing purposes, uh, supplies that might have even had um, food provisions. The bottom line is, it's, it's not an issue of uh, knocking down X number of men. It's also uh, catching the enemy by surprise so that when you do knock men down, there won't be anybody left to um, 
to defend the wagons, not just the wagons, but the provisions that are inside those wagons. So the good news is that uh, Thomas Sumter's request got approval from Horatio Gates. Now I'm beginning to see for myself that maybe Horatio Gates is, um, is becoming a little bit more uh, open-minded. How many um, men were there total under Gates's command? I'll give you a number. Was it between 3,500 and 4,500? That's the number range, but what number do you think it was overall? The answer is 4,100. But how many of those men do you think out of 4,100 were, were present, but most important of all, they were actually ready to fight? In other words, they were uh, available and ready to go. Was it uh, between... 3,000 or, or 3,200? The answer is 3,052. So think about it, folks. 3,052 was the total number of men whom were ready um, and available to fight. That means that um, 1,048 men were not able to fight for various reasons due to illness, uh, due to um, other... Um, personal matters. But it is fair to say that if for those whom weren't able to fight, it was largely due to illness. Because we do have to remember that for every uh, soldier who was uh, shot on the battlefield, two or three other men were dying from diseases. Now, late evening of August 15, 1780, Horatio Gates requests the march to Camden go into full gear. However, there are officers below Gates whom oppose the plan, whom oppose the plan, and rightfully so, considering the majority of the troops were inexperienced, especially knowing that this battle was going to be one of linear warfare, you know, aka traditional European open battlefield combat. Basically, for the majority of these men, they weren't fully prepared in any way for what lied at stake being the day after, come August the 16th. Now, here we go, folks. August 16th. We're going to um, get a um, grand um, presentation, or what I call a quick um, lightning presentation, of what um, took place at uh, Camden. British General Lord, Char Lord Charles Cornwallis placed the top regiments, that is his most uh, elite regiments, on the right side of where his forces were currently stationed. So Cornwallis, for all we know, um, could be in the middle. Not just Cornwallis himself in the middle, but whom he is overseeing in the middle, but yet the most elite of his uh, troops being on the right side of him. General Horatio Gates, however, instructed to have his North Carolina and Virginia militias be placed along the left. And by being placed along the left, folks, they are going up against the uh, elite forces that General Lord Charles Cornwallis has to offer. Who is at a greater advantage, folks? Cornwallis's forces. How so? 
because Cornwallis's forces, being this elite group, have far more seniority in terms of fighting. They have far more seniority of how to go about conducting warfare battles. Yes, it may be conventional fighting, but it's fair to say that these are seasoned veterans. As for those militiamen, the thought of having a bayonet being fixed on the rifle or a musket of a British soldier, an 18-inch um, bayonet coming at and, and the soldiers are running at full speed, yeah, it would be very frightening for many of these militiamen to be put in the front um, it's very, to me, it's ill-conceived. To me, it's reckless. You wouldn't want to place your most inexperienced uh, men up front. The only time you might place an inexperienced group of men up front is if you gave them instructions in, in advance on what to do. In other words, okay, if I'm going to place the most inexperienced of men up front, I'm going to ask that they fire at least one or two shots but do a retreat that is properly coordinated so that if the enemy comes after them, the enemy will eventually get caught in a trap that they can't get out of. Did, did General Horatio Gates do any of that, folks? No, he didn't do any of that. So, okay, so the North Carolina and Virginia militias are placed along the left where they, where they are facing the British along their right. It was not long afterwards that right as both sides were forming, General Cornwallis seized an opportunity that paid off big time. He spotted a crack within the continental left side, meaning the Brit, meaning the uh, militia, and Cornwallis took it upon himself by ordering a surprise bayonet attack. Ah, bayonets 18 inches long, you got them fixed on the rifles, muskets. Now Cornwallis is instituting a charge. Patriot forces become confused where chaos and fear kicked in, meaning no formal retreat got conducted. However, the only soldiers that were left to fight on the Continental side were the regulars from Maryland and Delaware who fought valiantly up until the end, but luck ran out for them when their um, commanding officer, being Major General Johann de Kalb, got mortally wounded. As for General Gates, he fled by horseback, leaving those below to defend their fellow brethren. Gates rode 60 miles to Charlotte. I'd have to say Gates retreated like a coward. I know that sounds harsh to say, but you know what? If you don't have a... I'll just say this for starters. Horatio Gates' um, entire plan was just a complete disaster or I should say a debacle, a huge mess. Anyways, just how important was Cornwallis's battle victory at Camden? Well, there are a lot of good reasons for it, folks. How about this one? Uh, for starters, uh, the British were already in control of the South's two most vital commercial ports, being Savannah, Georgia, and none other than Charleston, South Carolina. The British... Uh, beating the Americans in uh, December of 1778 with little um, resistance enabled the British to uh, secure um, Savannah without any trouble. And then you had the um, siege at uh, Charleston that lasted uh, for about um, 
close to seven weeks where uh, we and uh, where the British ended up uh, capturing uh, 5,400 um, American troops who were forced to surrender. And as a result of uh, the failed uh, attempt to um, keep Charleston in the hands of the Americans, we've lost one of our biggest uh, southern ports, Savannah being the second. Secondly, uh, British forces already had strong inland defense systems in play. Inland folks, you know, that's uh, what we would think of as west of uh, the coastal line, west of the, the beaches. So inland being further um, away from the uh, coast. So British forces have strong inland defense systems in play from Augusta, Georgia, being north of Savannah, including uh, all of northern South Carolina. But how about into um, Georgetown? And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar where Georgetown is, that's um, just on the outskirts of present-day Myrtle Beach. It's north of Charleston. But even the British themselves have um, inland defenses along the coast. It seems like the British have really, um, have really uh, done their homework well, starting out in Savannah, then working your way into the Carolinas, and it seems like nothing is stopping them. Third, the victory at Camden allowed British forces to control the southernmost route of the Great Wagon Road. That was the main thoroughfare road going south from Pennsylvania. The British had um, control to central South Carolina where Camden was located. So this victory at Camden has pretty much given uh, the British all the ammunition they need to control the flow of uh, traffic um, from a north to south corridor, most notably along the Great Wagon Road. In other words, they're the ones that are going to have uh, greater access to that road, and they can pretty much um, do whatever they want to do in uh, preventing um, everyday people from having access to the road. So in other words, they could pretty much say that this road belongs, that this road itself is now the King's Highway. Although the British were victorious at Camden, they weren't completely immune from attacks by Patriot forces seen as being irregular. Gosh, I would have thought with all this momentum that uh, Britain had that the thought of um, the Americans being able to do anything leading up to August 16th or even right after would have just been virtually impossible. But what I can tell you all is this. Um, Horatio Gates did meet other um, officers or commanders whom were from South Carolina and had far more knowledge of the backcountry than Gates himself could have ever had in his lifetime. As a matter of fact, on the actual day the Battle of Camden took place, um, Francis Marion, whom became known as the Swamp Fox, was... Um, joined Horatio Gates as a means of um, what was supposed to have been seen uh, deep down as unity, but it was really more for show. Right before the Camden, the Battle of Camden took place, Horatio Gates, uh, at the last minute, had Francis Marion go on a mission to recruit men from other places in South Carolina, um, most notably along, um, along the outskirts of Camden, and this actually may have not been a bad thing 
because had Francis Marion been at Camden, there's a great likelihood that he could have probably lost his life. There's a great likelihood that he could have become a prisoner of war. So there were um, men whom were doing things who were not at Camden, and they were actually the ones that, to me, were the greater heroes, the people whom actually knew what it meant to fight war, but doing so irregularly. irregularly. So let's, let's go to August 15th, the day before the Camden debacle. South Carolina militia commander Thomas Sumter, whom took 400 men under him, and that request was approved by none other than Horatio Gates. Sumter and these 400 men uh, went about launching multiple attacks on British forces. They weren't just launching attacks on British forces um, from all different angles, but these attacks were meant to disrupt the British uh, supply chain lines. Supply chain lines, folks, remember the wagons carrying all those provisions? Provision, you know, and a whole array of provisions. It was so bad, folks, that uh, the British didn't even know what uh, what came at them because all this these attacks were coming from different uh, angles. And in the end, uh, Thomas Sumter and, and his 400 men prevailed, and it led to capturing 40 enemy wagons, including 150 prisoners. And here the British routed us on the 16th. But if you ask me why was that the case, folks, it's all about leadership. Horatio Gates had no business being the commander of the Southern Continental Army. Of course, that's another topic onto itself, but had Nathaniel Green been given the nod, Camden would have been a whole different battle, and it would not have been fought conventionally. So how about other people stepping up to the plate um, and not just um, like one individual leading the way, but how about um, the same day, August the 15th, militia troops from both the Carolinas and Georgia, when I say Carolinas, folks, North and South Carolina. So militia troops on August the 15th from both the Carolinas and Georgia attacked a loyalist stronghold station around present day Lawrence, South Carolina where results yielded in killing and wounding of British, not just British troops, but Loyalist troops within the state of, uh, within the Carolinas, uh, most notably South Carolina. And this included taking 70 prisoners. Any kind of disruption is big for the uh, Continentals because disruption itself will keep the, will keep the British in South Carolina longer Disruption will force them into um, having to rethink strategies. Disruption will make them uh, realize that over time they will get worn out. And even if the loss of numbers are small, those losses do add over time. August 20th, four days after the Camden debacle, Colonel Francis Marion, a.k.a. the Swamp Fox, went above and beyond by rescuing 160 of his own men at Camden from British and Tory prisoner guards. I don't know how he did all that, but there must have been a um, there must have been some kind of prisoner exchange, but something uh, dramatic to have been able to have rescued 160 of his own men. Despite all these acts of heroism, however, 
the acts of heroism from the day before on the 15th and, and, and in the days after of the Camden debacle, British forces under Colonel Banastray Tarleton, a.k.a. Bloody Ban, decide to engage in their own um, battle of uh, irregular fighting by launching a surprise attack on uh, Thomas Sumter and his forces at Fishing Creek, August 18th. However, there wasn't a slaughter, but it's fair to say that this surprise attack was actually one that might have resulted in compromise. How can there be compromise when battle get when battles get waged? Well, it turns out that um, Tarleton's men freed Sumter's uh, prisoners, being Sumter's men whom um, whom were um, who might have been uh, taken prisoner on, back on the fifteenth, because I'm sure that Sumter himself did lose some men. And whatever men he was, and whatever men did not come back um, to the camp on the fifteenth from that surprise attack, probably were taken prisoner. So Tarleton's men uh, freed Sumter's prisoners, but unfortunately for Thomas Sumter and his men, they had to surrender all forty British supply wagons back over to the British. That's a crushing blow right there. On the other hand, yes, it might be great that you got your men back. However, if there's anything that came out of all this, is that it's one thing to be in control of South Carolina, based upon what we um, had discussed earlier with regards to why Cornwallis's victory at Camden was significant. But what the British don't realize is that it's one thing to, yes, score a major victory, but it's the little things over time that will add up to where your forces will either make or break uh, long-term uh, survival. In other words, at one, at one moment, losing 40 um, supply wagons. The British can't go to a, um, a convenience store. They can't go to a um, warehouse and ask for uh, backup uh, supplies. So in other words... They are fighting an enemy that hasn't completely given up yet. They are fighting an enemy that still is uh, lurking out there. They are fighting an enemy that that is coming from different corners and are no strangers to warfare, but are doing so in an irregular manner that will eventually wear down the, the giant, being uh, the British, to where over time... The British will probably end up retreating, but they will retreat in a manner that is not um, properly coordinated, a manner in a manner that will see more men um, die um, before making it to their uh, final destination. In other words, the game of chess, even before Nathaniel Green's arrival, is already in existence. And thank heavens there are leaders whom are willing to take chances and do things unconventionally that are keeping the flames of independence alive. All right, well, our next question is the following. We're going to learn some stuff about General Lord Charles Cornwallis here. Was General Lord Charles Cornwallis in full command of the British Army throughout the Revolutionary War? What do you all think? Turns out the answer is no. 
Although it has always been easy to assume that Cornwallis was the commander of the Revolutionary War, considering that he was forced to surrender to Washington in October of 1781 at Yorktown, which has often led many of us to believe that he was, in fact, the actual commander of, for the British throughout the Revolutionary War's duration, but we should know that is not the case. Cornwallis had started out serving under General William Howe until 1778, the year which Howe himself resigned, and then Cornwallis went about serving under Sir Henry Sir General Henry Clinton for the remainder of the war's duration. Prior to the British victory at Camden, General Clinton, Cornwallis's military boss, had returned north to New York after the siege of Charleston, leaving Cornwallis in control. But at the same time, uh, leadership from high up was not 100% intact. Regarding the long-term mission within the American South, we have to keep in mind, folks, that um, even in 1780, you know, we're, we're about in the sixth year of this conflict. Many in England are asking themselves, how much longer can this war go on? What is it going to take for us to be able to finally bring our subjects to their knees and make them uh, come back under our submission? Well, the British government is not in favor of extending the Revolutionary War, largely because its treasury is, is on the brink of uh, being virtually drained. So the government's not interested in um, extending the war, but nor is it interested in conquering the South long term. What they want is a quick knockout blow, but the only way it can happen is to get is for British forces already in the South, say under Cornwallis's uh, guidance, what the British government wants is that they want uh, Cornwallis's um, units to uh, recruit uh, loyalist um, followers whom will join them in the uprising where, the, where total victory would be more imminent. The thought of loyalist militia forces teaming up with British regulars would be seen as the best likelihood behind crushing what's left of this rebellion and putting the greater conflict to a complete quick end. The only problem that we, I see here is that I, I think it's fair to say that maybe the British, they think they know the loyalists in South Carolina, but we might come to some realization that at the same time they may not know those whom are of loyalist following in South Carolina as well as they think they do. Uh, Cornwallis's involvement in the Revolutionary War dates back to 1775 when he got promoted to Major General, and come January 1st of 1776, uh, that year he became Lieutenant General of the British Army in North America, and he did hail from an aristocratic family. Think about it. Lord General, General Lord Charles Cornwallis, if you have a title of Lord so-and-so, yeah, you are very high up in the ranks of uh, British society. Now, prior, um, here's the next question for you all. Prior uh, to the Revolutionary War's beginning, or beginnings, had Cornwallis been brought up in a militaristic bureaucracy system that preferred operating under tradition, a.k.a. order? Yes, 
considering, uh, for starters, that England was the world's mightiest empire, which meant the British government dictated where and when to send troops based upon the matters at stake. As for Cornwallis and his aristocratic background, it automatically meant that he would qualify under the, under the patronage system where officer commissions were purchased per individual's expenses, but the bureaucracy that uh, Cornwallis uh, lived under and benefited under, rather, I should say, was one that uh, catered only to the elite, leaving uh, the majority, a.k.a. the non-aristocrats, those who were from the lower um, ranks of uh, British society to fend for themselves. And many of these men did not have any say in how their government could do things better in terms of... Uh, in terms of looking after uh, those below um, aristocratic ranks um, to make sure that their um, needs were met. So I should point out that about 80% of the British Army was comprised of men from uh, the lower tier ranks of British society. Many of these men had been um, one time, um, believe it or not, they had been one time criminals. And by having these men serve in the military, the British government felt it was the best way to keep them uh, out of further troubles, and by having them in the military, they would be able to um, just to be able to uh, keep them in line. After all, it is fair to say that if you don't recruit enough men um, long term in your military, you do face shortages over time. So the other twenty percent are in the elite um, tiers of British society, uh, or I should say, the elite uh, aristocratic groups. They are the ones that the 20% tier are the ones that can um, afford to purchase their commissions. Now, December 1778, General Cornwallis uh, did, believe it or not, return to England only to learn of his wife becoming suddenly ill. He wanted out of the war due to an ongoing rift uh, between himself and General Clinton. His resignation was his resignation request rather was granted. But it wouldn't. But sadly, uh, in the aftermath of his wife's passing on February the sixteenth of seventeen seventy nine, Cornwallis rejoined the fight against the against America. Where um, come July of that year in seventeen seventy nine, he arrived into New York. Although Cornwallis and Clinton had a uh, fractious relationship, Cornwallis still had everything there was possible. From a momentum perspective, given uh, all the success he's had so far in the South, folks, uh, in, in South Carolina, but yet he remained fixed within the confines of his laurels, a.k.a. principles. He preferred on preserving existing fighting tactics, being that of linear warfare, with the hope that widespread Loyalist troops from within South Carolina could deliver a knockout blow, bringing the Revolutionary War itself to a complete end. It's one thing to want to have those from within a state be able to assist you, being, that is, uh, the British, but at the same time, how is it fair to say that the British can trust those from within their own state to rise up to the occasion and help them deliver that necessary knockout blow. It's 50-50, and I'll tell you why more here now. 
Who's Henry Rugley? Rugley is spelled R-U-G-E-L-E-Y. Why is Henry Rugley important? Well, he's not a general like George Washington, but he is a native of South Carolina. And after the uh, siege of Charleston's uh, aftermath, um, Henry Rugley took up arms with the British Army. He was a well-known merchant, or rather I should say businessman, businessman who had ties or connections not only in Charleston, but also outside of Charleston, being further inland towards the outskirts of Camden. So it is fair to say that the British, after Charleston, know that in order to be able to maintain their stronghold in South Carolina, they've got to look um, further inland. So, hey, if, um, if they've got someone who's uh, joining their side and he's a merchant businessman, it's fair to say that he's got all kinds of connections throughout different uh, places in South Carolina. Henry Rugley did have real estate ties, okay? It's, it's one thing to be a merchant, but if you have real estate ties to um, land dealings or just uh, land holdings, that's even better. So Henry Rugley, given his real estate ties, goes about building an industrial village on the outskirts of Camden, and this industrial village comprised of assisting um, various trade practices. And not only uh, did this village, um, not only was it a home for various uh, trade practices, but it also included his um, estate. So basically, not only is it his place for living, but it's also a facility where people can come and, and um, do what is necessary from a business standpoint. And think about it in a time of war. Yeah, you'd like to do whatever you can to uh, profit. So prior to the Battle of Camden, uh, loyalists and patriots were engaging each other throughout the Carolinas, where in some instances the skirmishes were so bad that uh, numbers between 200 and 300 men were either killed or wounded. Loyalists in South Carolina... You know, as much as we like to think that if you're loyal, that you're always going to stay loyal. But we should keep in mind that loyalists, especially in South Carolina, were not always loyal to king and country. If they felt slighted in any way or manner, their allegiances could change at a moment's notice. December 4th, 1780, two days after Nathaniel Green's arrival into Charlotte, North Carolina, Colonel Rugley's... Um, industrial village came under attack from Patriot forces led by Lieutenant Colonel William Washington. And yes, he is related to General George Washington. Lieutenant Colonel William Washington is the, is, um, the nephew of George Washington. It was under Lieutenant Colonel William Washington. Um, his tactics resulted in Rugley's surrendering the entire industrial facility, and not just the facility, but all of the officers and other men um, below of rank and file, all surrendered, That which also included Washington's uh, forces obtaining access to the provisions inside those facilities, 
So all of this is pretty crushing, and it's crushing because this surrender alone meant that General Lord Charles Cornwallis could not trust loyalists within the Carolinas. I think it's fair to say that General Lord Charles Cornwallis is getting a rude awakening. He's getting a rude awakening because he can't see for himself that 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 he is not he hasn't achieved a, a slam dunk. He thinks he has all the momentum on his side, but what he doesn't realize is that fighting is going on in other places, and it's taking place amongst men who may claim to be loyalists, but they aren't. Um, but they aren't the real deal. But it could also be fair to say that Cornwallis and his own British forces are not making the time nor effort to um, find out for themselves what they need to do on their end in assisting the locals who have professed their loyalty to king and country. It's one thing to say that we'll uh, look after you, but if you don't follow up on your uh, promise, then yes, it would be very fair to say that those below you would want to um, change, either change their allegiances or just uh, be neutral. So, um, General uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis is getting a um, he's getting a bad dosage, not just from what is happening uh, per uh, what American Patriot forces are doing, but he's also getting a bad dosage. Um, based upon the fact that um, just because one's loyal, it doesn't mean that they're going to stay loyal forever. They may be on your side today, but come tomorrow, it could be a whole other story. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air next time with all of you. And uh, thank you again for listening. You guys are great listeners. Continue to get that word out. And uh, when I'm back on the air next, we will have more to talk about. And Andrew Waters' To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan. Take care for now and stay safe.